With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Happy Friday and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you as always is Mr. Mark Daly and also Mr. Mark Hamilton. Both of us nestled here in the coastal mountains on the west coast of Canada. Excited and ready for one of the most prestigious, and we'll get into this, but one of the most prestigious events on the Formula One calendar. And we've had a ton of questions this week asking about what makes Monaco so special? Why is it so treasured on the calendar? calendar what is the racing like and we'll get to all of that but my friend i know you've had a busy week how are you you look great oh i i'm awesome you know why because this is my first day off in a run of four days so uh, it, it, for, for those of you who don't know, it, it's Victoria Day long weekend. Isn't it Memorial Day down in the States this weekend too? So I mean, it's this holiday kind time of year. Anyways, uh, so I, I've got, I took Friday off, Saturday, Monday's the holiday, of course. So I'm looking forward to four days. Of course, Tuesday's going to come pretty quick, but I'm just going to ignore that. We got Formula One on top of that. You know, I've been out cycling all the time. You know, the weather's been nice and the news has been pretty good around here lately. So it's che- it's checking a lot of boxes. So I'm I'm one happy camper, even though I'm not going camping. We, we talked about this last week, but it kind of feels like up here in Canada, or at least in British Columbia, as far as the vaccines are concerned, it's kind of like somebody just turned on the tap mm-hmm. and it's everywhere. Everyone's yeah. getting them. It's everyone's a, They're accessible to everybody. I think young people as young as 12, I think now are able to book appointments. So it feels like there's some really positive momentum. And like you said, mm-hmm. the weather's good. So we've got so much to look forward to. And we live in a province of 5 million people or just, just shade over 5 million people. And I think we're down to about three or 400 cases a day, which is super, super exciting. But yeah, lots going on, especially in the world of Formula One. This event is really, really unique because we typically record these podcasts on a Thursday night, drop them at some point during Friday, get people primed for the weekend, get people primed for a free practice one and free practice two. But one of the things that's really unique about Monaco is free practice one and free practice two are already in the books. (laughs) I know that's actually kind of cool too as well because it actually gives us something new to talk about. But I don't even want to talk about what happened on the track just yet. I wanted to talk about what happened off the track because I must admit I had some extremely impure thoughts when I saw the new McLaren livery that's going into this weekend. Oh my God, does that car look amazing? The retro throwback with that, uh, with the, the the papaya, the Gulf light blue colors on there, the retro helmets that Danny Ricardo and Lando Norris are going to have. I must admit that uh, it, it completely blew my mind. And when I heard last year, what was it last year? I think it was sometime early 2020 when they uh, announced Gulf as a, as a sponsor again. This was something that I was hoping that they were going to do. I mean, I think that they've, they've really hit a home run with the papaya that you know the mclaren historical colors anyways but this car looks absolutely amazing it, get, it gets a 12 out of 10 for me i completely agree and mclaren had begun inadvertently inadvertently or indirectly teasing that something was going to come on sunday last week so it looks like they'd had a press event 
at the MTC, the McLaren Technology Center in the UK, and they'd invited some members of the media, and they had them all under NDA. But what these folks were saying was they were tweeting and they're reporting that, hey, something exciting, McLaren's going to announce something exciting on Sunday. And it's like, what would they be announcing on a Sunday? Like, the driver lineup seems pretty good. They've got a new engine supplier. Like, what could it be? And then people started suggesting, maybe it's a new sponsor. Maybe it's a new livery. And that kind of made sense because... Monaco is a very special event on the calendar, and it's not unusual for drivers to bring out a special helmet or teams to flex in special ways when it comes to livery and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they've unveiled this unbelievable, super sexy livery. It's a one-time thing, and we talked about this a little bit on Twitter, and if you don't follow us on Twitter, please, please, please do. And for all those folks that joined us over the last week, thank you. We try to keep it fun. We keep trying to, or we try to keep it interactive, but that was one of the questions that came up last week was, can they keep this indefinitely? (laughs) I wish they could. Yeah, so do I. It looks amazing. And I think I must have used that Fry from Futurama meme a hundred times, which is take my money, take my money when it comes to merch and things like that. But you're totally right. It looks fantastic. And it wasn't even the only big news story for McLaren this week, which is the crazy thing. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but they re-signed one of their drivers and we'll get to that later to a multi-year deal, whatever that means. So an exciting week for McLaren fans for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to dive into the news from, uh, from free practice over the last day because I've got an email here that uh, I, I think we should talk about because the one thing that we talked, did we talk about last week about the the bendy wings, the inflexibility or we the flexibility? We did for about 28 minutes. Yeah, I know. I couldn't remember if it was last week or the week before. Anyways, this has uh, become a thing and it's uh, become you know, something that a lot of the different teams have been weighing in on that uh, they're, they're not uh, too happy about it but um, maybe this has something to do, it's going to kind of lead into a big conversation here. Anyways, uh, first emails from Colin Johnson, the uh, 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 emailing in from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, which is uh, awesome. Anyways, Colin has to say, I'm not a drive to survivor. I've been watching F1 for about 10 years and have more than a basic understanding of the sport. I'm sitting at home watching the recorded P2 session. I'm having a hard time believing how fast Ferrari are. How is it possible after the debacle that was last year? How does a team that struggled so badly not even a year ago heads uh, heads to P1 and P2 in practice? BS. Apologies uh, to you both for the expletive, but how can that happen? And is the FIA, FIA being truthful about Ferrari in general? Can you explain how they go from basically being the laughing stock of Formula 1's most established franchises to the top of the charts in any session? This makes no sense to me. Uh, the recovery that they have miraculously made is virtually impossible. Please break this down for me. So <laughs> we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but one of the things I find amazing is that Ferrari admitted that this week that they are one of the teams that have, you know, they, they openly said this, that they are one of the teams that have been experimenting with these bendy, flexible rear wings. Now, this is astonishing on a couple of levels because there was this video that was floating around about a week ago where somebody took some of the in-car footage uh, from behind Max Verstappen. You could see how the wing would flex. Like, basically, he drew a line across the top and you could see how it would drop, uh, you know, when there was a certain uh, load on that uh, that rear wing, which basically makes it, uh, you know, reduces the downforce and basically acts like a, a pseudo DRS system, right? Which increases totally. the, the, the straight line states, the speed, right? So we know that Red Bull is, is doing it. Ferrari's admitted that they've experimented with 
with it. And I was blown away by this admission because after this, what we suspect to be an illegal fuel map that they were running a couple of years ago, which led to that, um, you know, that uh, that in, uh, investigation and that secret agreement that they had with the FIA and last year's ridiculous, uh, you know, laughing stock of a season, as as Colin put it, or Colin put it, you know, to being a, a team that is vastly improved. And then, of course, you have to take practice times with a bit of a pinch of salt and maybe Monaco a little bit more so because it can be a bit of a lottery this race. But I, I have to admit, when I see these times myself, I have to be a little bit, I look at them somewhat incredulously and also somewhat skeptically. I think as skeptically, I think is probably the better word. I mean, and the other thing is just to sort of round out this multi octopus of a kind of train of thoughts here. But doesn't it not blow you away that they've admitted to experimenting with these flexible rear wings? Don't you think that they would have, you know, having, you know, put their hand in the fire <laughs> so recently that they would have maybe thought twice about maybe skirting around the rules a little bit? I mean, they, they haven't been banned. There hasn't been a technical directive about it. But I mean, it's it's really, really shady, this flexible uh, rear wing thing. And if I think I was Ferrari, I would probably, you would think you would be erring on the side of caution when it comes to this kind of thing. It's It's really funny because especially when it comes to flex in aerodynamics, this is something that's not new. Like this concept of a bendy, flexy rear wing that's helping them avoid drag and downforce to get faster straight line speed. This isn't unusual. This isn't new. This is something that the sport's been battling for the last 20 years or really ever since aerodynamics became a a really significant part of the sport. It's unusual in that we're seeing it in the rear wing. Typically what we see is teams get really bendy and flexy on the front wing. This is just the first time that we've seen it on the back wing and all teams are going to push their luck as far as they can. I think what was surprising about what we saw last race with Red Bull was just how obvious it became. Again, these wings are designed to have some elasticity because if they don't under load, they'll shatter and that's not good for anyone. So there's got to be a little bit, but ultimately I think Red Bull just pushed their luck. It is kind of funny to your point that Ferrari of all teams would offer that up in a public statement like, yeah, we're pushing our luck here too. Bendy wings are a great thing. And (laughs) I I also think that the timing here is perfect because we got a tweet um, or or, let me take a look here. Let me just bring up my notes. We got a great tweet from Wallace Torres who asked very much the same question that you were just speaking to. Uh, And he says, F1 newbie here, how meaningful are the practice results? Both Ferraris on top today, does it mean anything for qualifying? And I think my sentiment is very much like yours, that to me, practice doesn't mean a whole lot. And especially at Monaco, when you consider as well that we have four or five drivers. And if I look at the list here, it's the first time Latifi's ever seen this track. It's the first time Yuki's seen it. The first time Mazapan's seen it. The first time that um, Mick Schumacher's seen it. So for for 25% of your drivers, this isn't even a track they've ever seen, which means they're going to be super cautious. They're going to be very, very conservative. They don't want to kiss a wall. And likewise, I think if I'm if I'm Mercedes, you know what? I'm confident that my drivers know this track. I'm confident that we know what setup we need to achieve. I'm not going to go out there and burn through tires unnecessarily. So for some of these top teams, there's it's not really advantageous for them to push too hard in free practice, especially on a track like this, because 
the the margin for error is so low mm -hmm. that if you make a mistake, you know what, if you're in Monza or Silverstone or some of these other tracks with a lot of runoff, well, probably less so Monza, but Silverstone, which has a tremendous amount of runoff, you can push and practice because if you make a mistake, you spin on the grass. If you push and practice in Monaco, you kiss a wall and that entire free practice session might get red flagged. And then your mechanics are busy trying to rebuild your car and you're shaking up. So for these top teams, there's no true advantage for pushing for a top time. The other thing we should probably remember too, at least in free practice too, is the session got red flagged because Mick kissed a wall and nobody had the opportunity to top the times that signs and uh, mm -hmm. signs and Leclerc put in. So again, I think to answer the question, I don't put a ton of stock in free practice, especially on a track like this. Yeah, great point. And I just want to just rewind it just uh, I had in my notes here as well, just uh, going back to the flexible rear wings. So the FIA has informed the teams that uh, come the French Grand Prix that they are going to uh, introduce some new um, uh, wing tests to stop them exploiting these flexible uh, aerodyna uh, aerodynamics, pardon me. And uh, so they've got a couple of races to get it uh, sorted out. Now, it, it led to a couple of, uh, you know, interesting comments. Uh, Andrea Seidel, team principal of uh, McLaren, he's uh, not uh, too happy about it. Uh, he, thinks, uh, he, he feels that having that extra couple of races at Monaco and Baku is going to give uh, the, the teams that are exploiting these rules to, um, you know, you know the, the, he feels they've basically had an unfair advantage and it's uh, basically giving them time to uh, cover their tracks. Uh, Toto Wolf, uh, team principal at uh, Mercedes, he had to say, quote, delaying the introduction for whatever reason leaves us with a, in a legal vacuum and leaves the door open for protest. It's not only us, but it's probably two other teams that are most affected, maybe more. And obviously a protest could end up in the ICA, which is the International Court of Appeal. This is a messy situation. It can take weeks before we have a result and we should not have ended in this situation if we're having four weeks until the race that is most relevant in the calendar, end quote. So, you know, it is interesting. I mean, protests are nothing new in Formula One. We saw this uh, last week, or sorry, last week, uh, last year in Formula One with uh, the whole thing about uh, the, the the pink Mercedes and the the, the rolling protests, basically, from uh, McLaren and from uh, Renault and others after each and every race until they finally busted them on the uh, the, the brake ducts that uh, were basically off the, uh, the 2019 uh, Mercedes, so... Anyway, so no way to or no reason to sort of rehash, but it, it's funny. Something that wasn't even really on our radar a week or two ago has really become a really messy and nasty situation, which could really could it could end up with it being some provisional results, right? I mean, if a result is uh, protested and it kind of goes through the process, it could uh, flip the you know the, the the standings on its head because if it's kind of found out afterwards and penalties are involved, then who knows? People might have uh, points deducted, and uh, well, I, I guess it's Formula One and it's uh, not. Not its finest, but it is something we've seen before. Let's put it that way. Totally. And I just want to clarify as well that what the FIA and what Formula One are going to start doing isn't new. It's not like they haven't been testing for deformation in the wings. It's just whatever tests they've been applying, whatever low tests they've been applying, haven't been effective enough to pick up on how how bendy these wings have become. And as it turns out, there is actually allowances in the Formula One technical regulations that allowed the FIA to go back and revisit the way that they do stress tests and low tests on wings. So that's effectively what's being incorporated here, which is the FIA throwing their hands up saying, hey, whatever we're doing now isn't catching what's what they're able to do from a, an engineering perspective, we need to revisit that. And we're going to come back with a much more comprehensive test to help identify whether teams are really pushing the boundaries too much. 
Yeah, it's just uh, it's one of these weird things, you know, in Formula One. I mean, the sport goes so, so fast. And, yeah, I know. Right. Um, anyways, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, too, just uh, sticking with the uh, Ferrari science, uh, Carlos science, uh, that is uh, one of the drivers. He says that he believes that Ferrari are very close to being a genuine threat in Monaco. So, again, here we go uh, with uh, <laughs> going back to, to that uh, topic again. Anyways, uh, Carlos had to say, uh, quote, we definitely ha- look very close to being a genuine threat. I think we need uh, need to wait until FP3 because things can change a lot from Thursday to Saturday here. There are some drivers that stand uh, a bit back on Thursday just because they want to take it easy. And then suddenly on Saturday, like Lewis always does, he's super quick, end quote. So there you go. I mean, uh, Carlos, I think, uh, you know, very nicely summed up to what you were just uh, talking about is that sometimes, you know, guys just aren't pushing it because, you know, like if, like you're saying, I mean, if you kiss the wall, then, you know, you're damaging your car. That's going to be a lot of work that the mechanics are going to have to do to rebuild that car because it's not like you know you've gone off into the gravel and they're just uh, pulling rocks out of your radiators and out of the side pods you know it's going to be a major rebuild but it is interesting that this Ferrari you know, situation is going to be one that is going to come with a lot of scrutiny. And uh, you know, it goes back to the email that we just uh, read out that if all of a sudden they, they suddenly appear to be so good again, then people are naturally going to be suspicious about that. I, I just think based on their recent history, it's just uh, it's, a, it's a logical conclusion, don't you think? I've never thought about it that way, but I think you're absolutely right that they don't necessarily get the benefit of the doubt at this point, simply because the last time they looked hyper-competitive, it came to a screeching halt very quickly. And I think we we can all draw conclusions as to why that's the case. And I think that's why, to your earlier point as well, why it's so suspicious that they would offer up this information in, in a public setting. And maybe part of it is just media relations in the sense that, hey, the FIA is going to pick up on this anyways. We should probably get in front of it and just can see that, hey, we're doing this. Everyone's doing this. So it's not so... So react. You don't have to be in such a reactive position when the FIA announces that, hey, your wings is bendy as that which we've seen with Red Bull, because ultimately people haven't been looking. People have been scrutinizing and looking very closely at Red Bulls. They haven't mm-hmm. been looking as closely as at uh, Ferrari. I think maybe the one thing that and this is this is probably useful for the listeners to know, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, in that Monaco is it's a very different track. It's it's a much more unpredictable track simply mm-hmm. because qualifying plays such an important role. There's such a high risk of damage, of safety cars, and all those other kind of pieces. But I think one of the most I don't want to call it memorable features, but one of the most prevalent features of this track is there aren't a lot of really long straightaways. So cars with high top speeds or cars that have a remarkable amount of acceleration don't necessarily have the same advantage here that they would at other tracks. So that bendy wing presumably isn't going to be as effective a tool. And if it is on the back of the car, it's not going to be as obvious because the wings aren't going to see the same kind of load that they would see on a straightaway to a traditional circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's uh, take a quick uh, break here, Mark. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen and some of the things that have been going around and discussions about their title battle. And we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And well, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit now about Max and Lewis. And uh, Lewis himself had to say that uh, he feels that he's done well to avoid any incidents or crashes with uh, with uh, rival Max Verstappen so far. And he thinks at this moment, at any rate, uh, that there's what he calls a balanced respect uh, between the two of them. And I think certainly from Lewis's point of view, uh, from, from Lewis, uh, certainly, I mean, uh, it was very much on display in Spain a couple of weeks ago, even though he went on to win that race just in that first first corner on the opening lap where they both went in Max had the inside line Lewis maybe a little bit further ahead maybe just um, maybe by a tire width or two uh, but uh, he did back off gave Max the the, uh, the the space that he needed anyways he won the race in the, in the long run but it's interesting I, I just uh, when I see that I have to wonder if that is uh, going to be reciprocated by Max. I, I think so. If you kind of look at that, uh, go back maybe to Bahrain in the opening uh, uh, race of the year when Max, you know, he went to exceeded the track limits. And even though he said afterwards, he didn't really feel like uh, he wanted to give the, the, the position back, he did. So I, I think that there is, but I think that if there is any more respect, I, I think maybe it's going to come more from Lewis. It might be a sort of a 60-40 thing or a 70-30, but I think Lewis is going to be the more sporting of the two, at least at this point. I completely agree. I think the dynamic, though, for Max Verstappen has changed this year. If you if you look at the last three or four years, or really the entirety of his time with Red Bull, they've never really been in a meaningful battle for either driver's title. So when Max has been on the track, his only concern is racing his own race to accumulate his own driver's championship points, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's looking to do. I think that the pressures on him are different this year because ultimately he's working to accumulate points both for his own driver's championship, but also for the team's constructor's championship. And I think their, their race strategy and I think his personal racing philosophy this year have to be a little bit different. And I think getting very, very aggressive and getting tangled up and potentially compromising all of the points in a race rather than simply a position isn't probably something that Christian Horner and the Red Bull team are going to are going to accept this year. And I think his approach is going to be different, especially for probably the first two thirds of the calendar, especially if it's close. I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be fast and I think he's going to be aggressive, but I don't think he's going to initiate contact in ways that we may have seen in the past, simply because I think there's pressures on him and there's opportunities for him to win this year. And he doesn't want to compromise any points because the championship could be close. And if you tangle with a driver and you damage your suspension and you DNF, you might leave 15 or 20 points on the table and you cannot afford to lose any of those points. And likewise, like I said, I think part of it's because he's really helping the team chase two titles this year, which is not a position he's been in. And I think that's probably changed the way that he approaches 
the races. And I think the team has probably been very clear with them as well that ultimately we want you to be aggressive. We want you to be the alpha. We want you to fight for the race wins, but you cannot afford to throw them away. This is the best package we've ever given you in terms of the car and the power unit. You know what? Last year we had some bad luck. There were a flurry of DNFs, but we were never in title contention anyways. This year we're in title contention. Do not throw it away over an unnecessarily aggressive move and do not initiate contact. And I think the message ultimately is, look, if Hamilton is better pace, I'm not saying let him through, but don't make stupid mistakes that could compromise 20 points for us in the championship. Yeah, exactly. And just to add a bit of a twist to this uh, conversation, uh, Lewis had to say also uh, this week that um, in addition to the fact that they've avoided having an accident or any incidents uh, this year, he said that he feels that uh, perhaps Max has a lot to prove. So anyways, Max, he had to say, quote, nope, I have nothing to prove and avoiding contact. I think that goes uh, both ways. So we have done well that that's true. But yeah, we race hard. We avoided contact uh, both sides. So let's hope we can keep doing that on the uh, being on the track and racing hard against each other. Okay, I I, I see, you know, uh, that he recognizes that. But when he says, nope, nothing to prove. Okay, you're talking about being in a title battle with a seven-time world champion, and you feel like you don't have anything to prove? I'm going to call you out on that. I'm sorry, Max. I mean, the thing is, if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. And Lewis is the best, bar none. He's been the best for all these years. So to to say that, uh, you know, he's got nothing to prove, I think that's... uh, I think he would probably want to reevaluate that comment. I think there's an, an element of psychological warfare in there from Max, not letting the pressure get to him. But I don't see how he could really say that in public, honestly. I just want to back up that comment, too, because I think we're giving these two guys who make a combined $60 million U.S., we're giving them an awful lot of credit for not crashing into each other through four <laughs> races in the calendar. Like, kudos to the two best drivers two best in Formula One yeah. for not initiating contact. Like, we're probably giving them too much credit this early in the championship, but I think you're absolutely right that— Max is a great driver. He's got a great package. I I think if I was building a Formula One team, I think I would probably want to build around a driver like Max Verstappen, but he's never been in a championship battle. And we don't necessarily know how he's going to withstand the psychological warfare that we know is going to come from Lewis Hamilton because he's been both the recipient and the offensive um, in terms of those past experiences. Like we've never seen him five races out from a championship. We've never seen him three races out. We don't know how he's necessarily going to handle. And I have every confidence he's going to be fine, but ultimately he's never been, he's never been, he's, he's never been that close to a championship. Lewis has, to your point, won seven of them. Like Lewis is the one that has nothing to prove. Max, you have everything in the world to prove. Mm-hmm. You've proven you can win a Grand Prix with a great car. You've proven that you can put in some great lap times. You can, you've proven you can race in the wet. You've never proven that you can win a championship. If you win a championship this year, then those comments can apply next year. They don't apply now. Yeah. And uh, just to sort of take this a little bit uh, further than that, because, um, you know, well, actually, before I do that, I do want to say that uh, what we've seen in Bahrain, in Imola, in Portugal, in in Spain so far, I mean, it's been great. The last thing I want to see is an incident uh, between these two that uh, that uh, I guess maybe makes them dial it back a little bit and uh, maybe give each other way more space. I, I like seeing good, hard, fair racing. I'd like to see that uh, continue. But anyways, what I wanted to talk about now is uh, I think we talked about it last week. We had the uh, an email that addressed the the ham goats 
issue. And I said, you know, I was basically done with that whole discussion about Hamilton being the greatest of all time. But Danny Ricardo had to uh, kind of wade into this conversation uh, this week. And anyways, he said that uh, he believes that um, that Lewis is what he's calling hard uh, fought victories this year in the uh, in Formula One are starting to help silence the doubters who have questioned how good Lewis is. And he's only won just because he's had a, you know the best car for all for all these years. And I think that really is a good point because I mean the the other week I mean last week in Spain and then in in Portugal it was maybe not quite as hard as it was maybe the first couple of uh, wins he had of the season of course Max won in the in between as well but the thing is Lewis is not like 40 50 60 seconds down the road and you know he hasn't been challenged since lap 5 or something like that I mean he's actually had to work uh, kind of hard for them so I think it's interesting to see or hear a comment uh, like that from one of his peers one of his f- fellow drivers I mean uh, what uh, Danny Rick uh, was uh, saying um, uh, was uh, exactly this quote a lot of people are probably tipping their hat to Lewis he's getting it dish back at him and he's holding his ground and I guess showing people that maybe doubted him why he is good as he is uh, at this stage you'd always guess take experience so if it's really down to the wire I, when then I think Lewis has showed some very strong signs but then again if there's a gap Max go for it that's why obviously I respect Max a lot end quote anyways it's kind of a little bit all over the place but uh, I think I think it is true I mean that uh, he he's uh, recognizing the fact that Lewis hasn't had it easy to him and he's had to, to, to work pretty good. I mean, the, his team's helped him out with some uh, some pretty good uh, tactics and strategies as well. And, uh, you know, it's kind of been the you know a full team effort, right? I don't think anything Lewis can do through the balance of his career will silence the critics. I think, no. I think the most vocal of Lewis's critics, and those are the ones that are typically in the British tabloids that kind of rile up the social media crowd that are kind of on the fence already. I don't think anything will silence them, which is really, really unfortunate. And I think the sense I get is that our audience is very, very balanced, and I think they're very objective, and I think they're willing to listen to opinions, and I think they're willing to credit drivers with great drives, mm-hmm. but I think there's just a certain segment of the media and the press that will never credit Lewis for anything. So it doesn't matter what this championships look like, and you know, maybe it comes down to the wire and Lewis wins by a point. I, I don't think he'll get credit, and I think people will just defer to the fact that he has the best car, and he has the best engine, he has the best team, and they, have, they spend the most money, and he's the paid driver and he should win like there's always it's too easy to criticize lewis and i just i don't think he's i think i just don't think he's ever going to get credit from this point on (laughs) short of taking a seat at haas and pulling them to the top three in the constructors championship i just think he's in a really tough position yeah, I, I think so too. Anyways, no more ham goat uh, discussion in this uh, this episode. Um, anyways, uh, where was the next one? Where did I want to go with this? Um, well, again, uh, we could go to the one I, I sort of uh, mentioned a little bit earlier. Do, do we really want to talk about uh, Hamilton and uh, talking about how surprised he was at uh, Ferrari being so strong in, uh, in in Monaco in practice? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I guess it's just uh, more of the, 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 the same, but I guess uh, it kind of goes back, you know, without diving into this one again, since we already talked about it. But I, I think is one of those funny things that you know just based on their recent history whenever they have something whether it's it's legit or not everybody's you know automatically raising eyebrows and being suspicious about it and, and even lewis is the same uh, same position that oh ferrari's quick well uh, i'm a bit surprised about that you know what, what's going on there <laughs> so i think that's kind of funny actually 
Oh, goodness. Got nothing to add to that. Yeah. But, you know, the, the one thing I did find a, a little bit interesting uh, to, to go back and just uh, sort of revisit this uh, one a little bit is that uh, Max was saying that uh, he thinks that Red Bull is very weak compared to uh, Ferrari. Now, <laughs> I think that would be really quite disturbing considering how good Red Bull has been over the first uh, three, four races of, of the year. I mean, Maybe that that car wasn't really adapted to two very similar circuits at Barcelona and Portimao. But I mean, they were pretty good over the first two races. Uh, anyway, so what Max had to say was, quote, we are too slow and not just by a little bit, I think by quite a bit. So uh, we really need to find some pace because everyone has traffic. You have to look a little bit more to optimum lap time, so optimum sectors, and we are quite off. Uh, it also didn't feel great to drive. Normally, I'm quite comfortable in the car. I can easily uh, get it to, uh, to a pace, but it takes too long and it's not how I like it. So far, it's been the most difficult weekend, end quote. So, I mean, th- that doesn't really lend and uh, a lot of sort of positive vibes going into this race if you're a fan of Red Bull and uh, and Max Verstappen because you would think, well, maybe not uh, that uh, you would think, but I, I think <laughs> I'm talking all over the place, you know. I, I'm thinking that after this race that uh, we'll have uh, had a pretty good selection of different kinds of tracks and, you know, being five races into the season now, I think we should probably have a, a good idea of where all these cars are at and what tracks they're kind of suited to. I mean, like we were saying earlier, Monaco really is the big unknown because there, there's going to be a safety car, there's going to be traffic, and everybody's going to get stuck behind somebody at uh, some other point. I mean, a couple of years ago, remember, all the drivers were complaining how boring it was. It was basically one procession around because nobody could get close enough to pass. Everybody's getting stuck behind traffic. And it, it sometimes cannot be the most exciting race on the calendar. Sometimes you need something exciting to, just to sort of uh, change it up and have a bit of, uh, you know, a humorous moment like the time Danny Ricardo went into the pits for tires and Red Bull had no tires for him <laughs> well it was something like that but uh, you know that's that that was obviously uh, just a, a bit of an outlier but you know you know what I mean right I mean this race can be a little bit uh, predictable and it's also unique too because it is it's very tight it's it's very compact like you'd mentioned there's not a lot of uh, straightaways so I mean th- this track is really in a class of its own and it, it really I don't. I really don't know where it would kind of factor into the the sort of the I guess the grading sheet if you wanted to call it uh, over the first five races and say okay well the Red Bull was good here here and here Mercedes was stronger there there and there but you know come over the first five races maybe the Mercedes is a better all round car compared to the Red Bull so I, I don't know Monaco's always such a, a weird one to kind of judge for me it's it's such a unique and such a strange circuit. You're right. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about the way that the calendar breaks out here is we were on a traditional purpose-built track in Bahrain, um, in Italy, in Portugal. The Spanish Grand Prix was the same. And then we have these back-to-back races on these really tight, windy street circuits. And again, I guess Baku isn't necessarily super windy, but there's definitely some tight corners, but it does have that one exceptionally long straightaway. Monaco is... Baku is is such like, it's such a strange circuit as well, because it's not really like a road circuit like any others. I mean, like you say correctly, there's some very tight, very technical, very windy corners, but there's also some very fast sections on that track as well. It's it's very, it's very different for for different reasons than Monaco is. It's kind of the opposite to Monaco when it comes to a street circuit. Yeah, and it's funny because as I was saying that, that they're, so they're different, I I would say Monaco and Azerbaijan, Baku, 
they're different than a traditional purpose-built circuit, mm -hmm. but they're not alike. And it's funny because I didn't really make that association in my head until I start looking at the tracks. Monaco is a race of its own. And I don't know if we want to get into kind of doing a preview now or kind of save that for the back half of the show, but Monaco is very, very, very special. And it's special for all the reasons that you just spoke to. And really it's, it's one of the things that makes Formula One special as a championship, because if you look at North American racing if you look at the indycar series you know it's a combination of a couple of street circuits that are kind of roughly shoddily thrown together you've got a couple of dedicated race circuits you've got a mix of oval nascar is predominantly oval although they throw in some street races as well formula one's almost everything except oval but you would never see a race like this in any of the other series in fact if Monaco was to approach Formula One today and they'd never hosted a race before, there's no way this race happens. This race mm -hmm. happens because of history yep. and because of tradition. And we will speak to a little bit of that later on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we just take a, a little bit of a quick uh, or an early break here, Mark, and come back. Um, there's a, I, I want to get into the driver's silly season because there's actually quite a lot to talk about. And then we can, um, after that, we can go and talk about the, 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 the race itself. So let's take a quick break and we come back. We're going to talk about the silly season and for those of you who don't know what that is, we're going to speculate on who's going to go where for next season. That's always uh, really fun. So we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. So yes, driver market time. It, it seems that silly season seems to start earlier and earlier every year. You know, it, it used to be sort of a middle of the summer kind of thing, but it seems it's uh, it gets pushed back each and every year. So first of all, Valtteri Bottas uh, believes that the upcoming summer break in the middle of, uh, well, I guess at the beginning of August would be what he says a good deadline to get a decision on his future with Mercedes and stop it from uh, becoming a distraction uh, later on in, in the season. Season. And th this, I think, you know, if you're Valtteri, I think you want to know in advance what their deal is going to be, if there's going to be a deal between the two of them, because ever since he joined that team early in 2017, it has just been one rolling or one year rolling contract year after year after year. And I think that uh, this year, maybe there's uh, some more questions, which we, we've talked about, uh, you know, quite a bit. I don't think we really need to jump into like all the pros and cons of, uh, you know, keeping Valtteri Bottas in that uh, team. And, you know, I mean, he's done the job that they've needed him to do. He's helped them win multiple championships. He's won a bunch of races himself. So he's had success there. But he said that, um, that from his point of view, that uh, that getting uh, an answer on what his contract situation uh, decided and sort of earlier is always going to be a, a lot better for him and uh, he said that he hasn't really thought too much about it uh, just yet and he said he at this point in time he's just concentrating on the racing uh, but he wants to know earlier or, or as early as possible about what his future is going to be with Mercedes and then obviously within Formula One you know it, it really is kind of funny because when you you hear comments like that, especially so early into a season. I mean, we're not even, we're roughly a quarter of the way into the season so far, not quite. And to, to hear drivers sort of talking about what their future might be, it, it just, um, I'm still trying to figure out who's at which team right now. And it, it, it seemed like, <laughs> you know, it seemed like the driver market was fairly settled. But I mean, there are just in the background, and we, we talk about it from time to time on the show, that uh, there there are some big question marks going out there. So, you know, potentially, I mean, any move at Mercedes could really kick off like a, a big snowball effect in the driver market and people moving around because that would obviously be the one seat everybody would want to get. 
For a little bit of context, I think it's important to remember, and you teed this up perfectly, but I think it's important to remember that Valtteri joined Mercedes after the shock retirement of Nico Rosberg. So he wins the title in 2016. It came down to the wire, probably the most exciting championship of the last seven or eight years. And then he shocks the Formula One world by retiring. And Valtteri Bottas gets the deal with Mercedes, but you teed it up perfectly. Every single year, it's been a one-year deal. Now, and and we and you know what the timing for this is actually perfect because we actually got a question on Twitter from at L Space Monkey, seeing as Lando signed a new contract, how do contracts work in F1 for pay scale to how many years they sign? One of the things that I think we should probably stress here is that Formula One drivers get very, very, very little security. I think in North American sports, we're used to seeing athletes sign these three, four, five, seven. In the NHL and Major League Baseball, we see these seven, 10, 13-year deals. Mm -hmm. And a lot of sports, it's guaranteed money. In Formula One, they are super short-term deals. And if you look at Valtteri Bottas and you nailed it, every single contract he signed with Mercedes has been a one-year deal. So he races every single season without any understanding of where he's going to be racing the next year or whether he's even going to be in Formula One. So I thought this was an interesting comment for him to make in part because unfortunately he has zero leverage in that negotiation. Mm -hmm. He has zero leverage. Like we're four races into the championship. He had a DNF, a couple of podiums. He hasn't really been that racy in terms of the car. He hasn't won a race. Ultimately, I don't think, I think the only thing he could do to influence this negotiation is to want to win a bunch of races, but I don't even think that's enough. I think deep down Mercedes has made their decision and it might be to stay with them. It might be to go to George, go with George Russell, but he's never had that security before. And he can talk about hoping to have security, but I think for him, it's probably just as much the peace of mind. And I think if he's not going to come back, I think he would like to know that mid season because you made that comment earlier about the fact that it could potentially just become a distraction. And we talked about that with Hamilton for the past six months that, you know, this year is going to be a distraction and it probably will. But I think for Bottas is just about the peace of mind. Look, yeah. if you're not, bringing me back i need to know i want to be able to start planning my future having conversations with other teams yeah. and if you do want to bring me back let's get something done mid-season but i think if i'm mercedes if i know i'm not going to bring him back sure i'm going to share that but if i'm on the fence i need to see the full season i need to see the full book of work to be able to make that decision because i'm not going to commit to you mid-season when there's 12 races left on the calendar and you may fall apart and we get criticized so he may want it, but he has zero leverage in this discussion. Yeah, which I think is uh, pretty unfortunate. Uh, I, I mean, I think he's done a great job for Mercedes. I mean, he's done everything and more than uh, what they've asked uh, of him. I mean, he's been the ideal teammate to, to Lewis. I mean, any of that uh, toxicity that uh, existed in that team in the, the, the Hamilton-Rosberg era disappeared the day that Nico retired. You know, what was it? It was like a week after he won the championship, maybe not even. That was the most bizarre thing. I mean, he came in and did everything and more that uh, they needed him to do. But correct me if I'm wrong, but did not uh, did he not have, um, at least in the past, were some of his deals not like a, a one-year contract with a team option or something like that? And this year was just like a, a straight-out one-year deal with no option at the end of it? Or yeah, am I thinking of somebody one, else? There were one plus ones. This was the first year where it was simply a one-off. A one-off, yeah, okay. Now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, so he wants to know as soon as possible, because I, I think that was, um, if you go back to last year, if you look at the two Haas drivers, uh, Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen, I think they were told, wasn't 
it in and around the what was it the well the the Eiffel Grand Prix at the Nurburgring? It, it, it was late in the season when they found out that they weren't going to be coming back, and I, I think the comments that came from both of them was, yeah, well, you know that sucks, and uh, you know, well, we're we're not going to be here, but you know that's racing. But why couldn't you have told us earlier? Because then it would have given us more time to look at options for the future. I mean. Ultimately, they both went on to do other things, but you you could understand why somebody would be a little bit uh, upset about that. I mean, Bottas, I mean, we've talked about, you know, what, you know, a, a Mercedes team with him in it at, at that age would be and the, the, the prospects and stuff like that. But I think that uh, Valtteri is still a very, very good Formula One driver. And I think that uh, there would be a lot of teams interested in his services. But when you look around the grid, the, the teams that have drivers under contract and who's going to be where for next year kind of makes you wonder that uh, if uh, Mercedes don't bring him back that uh, you know where would he land and maybe that's part of the, the the reasoning that Valtteri is having himself saying that the, the more notice I can get the better because if it's not going to be here maybe he's kind of thinking uh, something similar well maybe I might not uh, have a seat in Formula One next year maybe I'm going to have to sit out a year or maybe this is a uh, you know if I'm not going to to, to get a seat with a Mercedes uh, it's gonna, maybe not going to be with a, a team that's going to be well, maybe not their equal, but uh, another, say, top tier team, uh, you know, am I looking at like a Haas or a, an Alfa Romeo or, you know, a team like that? And I think if you're Valtteri Bottas, you'd probably be like, well, thanks, but no thanks. Maybe I'll go and look at, uh, you know, maybe I'll, you know, race in endurance cars. Maybe I'll try my hand at Le Mans or something like that, right? So I think he he's maybe looking in that direction. That's just kind of the vibe that I want or I'm That's getting from him, right? That's a great point. And, and I think you're right that for him, part of it's peace of mind, but Part of it's because if he's not going to come back, he needs to find another job next year. And it <clears> might be in Formula One. Like, who knows? Maybe there's a driver swap with Williams and he basically just changes seats with George Russell. You know, he's familiar with the Grove team. He spent yeah. a lot of time there. He raced for that team. He scored podiums for that team. Maybe that's a natural transition. But that team may also itself be looking for pay drivers that bring sponsorships because that's not something that Valtteri Bottas has the capacity to do today. But ultimately, to your point, if he's not going to be in Formula One next year, he needs as much time as possible to find a seat in a different series because again he's young enough that he's probably still looking to race and he would need time to find a contract and a sponsor and a team to take him on an indie car he's certainly not going to go to stock racing but endurance racing or any of these other touring car series in in north or in, in europe um, but the other challenge too is by f1 standards he's relatively well paid and I, again that going back to that question from our our listener on twitter F1 contracts are very, 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 very secretive. They're not published publicly. In fact, Formula One contracts are contained in a quote-unquote secret archive at the <laughs> FIA's Contract Recognition Board in Geneva, which is in fact only accessible to six lawyers appointed to hear contractual disputes as they may arise between the teams, the body, and the FIA. So the contracts are signed and they're stowed away. Now, a lot of information comes out and typically teams will make public the terms. So the term of the contract, but the actual financial components and the incentives, because it's generally understood that most contracts have kind of a base salary and then drivers can build on that with performance bonuses so hey if you get a poll we're going to bonus you $150,000 or if you accumulate 50 points we're going to give you $100,000 for every point so there's different kind of incentives like that but in terms of what it's understood to look like this year Lewis Hamilton sits at the top and it's understood that he's probably going to earn about $30 million from his Mercedes deal that's actually down significantly from last year which is probably one of the reasons why he was so sour coming out of those contracts 
contract negotiations with Mercedes. Max Verstappen is second at 25 million. Fernando Alonso is at 20. Ricardo's at 15. Vettel's at 15. Leclerc's at 12. Valtteri Bottas is at $10 million. And if you look at the bottom, you've got drivers like Yuki making about 500 to 800K. It's speculated. Russell's a million. Latifi's a million. Mazapan's a million. And Mick Schumacher's a million. And again, in some of those cases, they're paid drivers. So that's a token number that they basically have to publish to show that the driver's earning something. But yeah, Formula One contracts are pretty interesting. And the other thing I just wanted to add, just while we're on the topic of contracts, because I always find this interesting, and I think our North American listeners will as well. In North America, we're used to sports where players sign a contract, and if they so much as look at another team before that contract is over, there's tampering charges, there's fines, there's investigations. In Formula One, there's no collective bargaining agreement. So you sign a contract, but you are more than welcome to go start shopping for a new contract before the conclusion of that deal. And we saw that last year with Carlos Sainz, which, you mm-hmm. know, he he had a contract with Ferrari before he'd even started his final season with McLaren. So you see some really unique things in Formula One that you wouldn't see in North American sports. But that's all I got on contracts. Well, it was funny too when you were talking about that. I was thinking about some of the, uh, well, I wouldn't say some of the weirder things, but maybe some of the more lucrative terms. Wasn't it Kimi Raikkonen was it way back in 2012 or something, 2013 when he was with Lotus? Didn't he get like, what What was his deal for the bonuses? Was it something like 50,000 euros per point that he scored in the world championship or something like that? They never figured he was going to score as many points as he did. And he, he had like this ridiculous multi, multi-million euro bonus that needed to be paid out at the end of the year, which I think basically really hit uh, Lotus uh, really hard on the bottom end to, <laughs> to pay out all this cash that they never thought that uh, he'd have a chance uh, to, to earn all these bonus points. from Reddit, because this is one of the most amazing facts in F1 history. Kimi Raikkonen, I'm so glad you brought this up, by the way. Kimi Raikkonen's Lotus contract for 2012-2013 included a 50,000 euro bonus for every constructor's point he scored. Now, obviously, the team wasn't expecting to score a lot of points. (laughs) He scored 390 points, earning an extra 19.5 million euro. Lotus (laughs) almost went bankrupt. They literally almost went, and they're no longer in the sports, they literally almost went bankrupt paying out that amount plus his base salary. That's it's it's absolutely crazy. I knew it was something like that. I couldn't remember what the grand total was in the end, but that's absolutely mind blowing. And then, well, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, Lotus eventually became uh, Renault, which is now Al- Alpine, right? But uh, <laughs> it makes you wonder because uh, th- when did they pull out? Then was it the end of 2014? And then uh, Lotus, yeah, and then Lo- or, uh, Lotus became. Well, I guess Renault was just basically a rebadged Lotus for 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 2015. But it kind of. Made Makes you wonder that that huge 19 and a half million euro bonus that they had to pay Kimmy back at the end of 2012, 2013, or whenever it was, that must have really hurt them, put them in a tough spot. And whoever negotiated that deal on, on the on the Lotus side would probably got to, you know, must have had a pretty stern talking to, let's put it that way, from from his bosses after that was done. It's just like, you thought this was a good idea. Why? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and 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 who's at fault there? Is it that the team negotiating that deal has just such unclear expectations of what the team can do or maybe did the team overperform and such like that would be a a really interesting 30 for 30 and just to for for those of you that are going to now go and kind of google lotus f1 there was a period in recent f1 history when there were in essence two different lotus f1 teams racing at the same time due to some very weird and peculiar licensing agreements so if you go down that wikipedia rabbit hole don't 
don't be too surprised if you run into that oddity as well. It's just like the Canadian Football League where you have two, an eight or nine team <laughs> league where two of the teams are called the Rough Riders. So there you go. It's a, it's a multi-sport phenomena. Hey, anyways, sticking with the, the driver's market, this next story kind of leads into where I eventually want to go with this. So we'll, we'll, we'll start it now. We'll have a break coming up, then we'll, we'll pick it up on the other side. But uh, Lando Norris, 21 years old, has just signed what's called a uh, multi-year deal with uh, McLaren. So the uh, the terms of the deal, being wonderfully vague in Formula One terms, uh, says that uh, he's going to be with the team until 2022 and beyond. So, okay, well, whatever. So he's going to be there at least for this year and next year. And uh, Danny Ricardo is uh, going to be there until at least the end of uh, 2023. So that driver pairing is uh, set for at least the, the, the next uh, couple of years. Um, so I, I think this is great. I think that Lando... 100% to deserve the opportunity that he got with McLaren. I, and uh, he's he's paid them back over the uh, first couple of years that he's been in Formula One. I think that uh, we've still are yet to see the best of uh, Lando Norris. I'm excited to see where he's going to go. And uh, I think he's absolutely deserving of uh, this uh, this extension. And I would love to get my hands in that, uh, that, that secret vault in Geneva to see the exact terms of this contract. But no doubt he's been, uh, you know, richly rewarded for what he's done and I, I think it's great to see I think that uh, he's one of the I think it's kind of cool too just uh, a lot of these young guys that we're talking about getting deals like this Charles uh, is one Charles Leclerc Carlos Sainz getting a good deal with uh, Ferrari and um, uh, Lando Norris and you know, a lot of these young drivers that maybe we didn't expect to maybe well maybe we did expect where we had hopes that they would stick with these teams I think we're starting to see it now and of course uh, Max Verstappen he signed that uh, long term uh, deal with uh, with Red Bull uh, I guess it was a uh, beginning of 2020 or late to 2019. So it's kind of cool to see these young drivers, A, delivering on the track and then being rewarded for it. So good for Lando. I agree. I wish I knew what multi-year translated into. I, I think it's probably two years beyond whatever he's under contract for now. I think that's a pretty rich deal. We do see the occasional three-year deal. Charles Leclerc signed one a couple of years ago. Sergio signed one with, with Lawrence Stroll, although we all know how that one turned out, <laughs> basically getting ripped up halfway through. Uh, but I also want to credit McLaren because they did a really snazzy job of promoting this signing on social media. They did this really cool video and it's a video that shot from kind of the first person perspective of Lando and he's kind of sitting in the hospitality suite and somebody approaches him like, hey, Zach wants to speak to you. He's like, okay. And he's walking and you're just seeing it from his perspective and he keeps running into members of the McLaren team like, oh, Zach wants to speak to you. Zach wants to speak to you. And eventually he gets down to the office and opens the door and Zach's there. He's got the contract sitting on the table in front of him. So I thought it was kind of cool how they integrated the entire team into into this video and this this contract announcement but yeah excited for him and i think both you and i think very very highly of him both as a person and as a driver and he's also wonderful from a social media perspective because he's got a great twitch presence um he's got a really really great loyal young following um and he's just a charismatic individual so great signing for mclaren i would say though that he probably didn't also have a lot of leverage in this negotiation mm -hmm. you know, he's done he's done pretty well and he's he scored some podiums although there have been circumstances that enabled that to happen happen. But ultimately, if he goes to negotiate with McLaren, you take whatever they offer you because what's the alternative? Where else are you going to go? Like this yeah, is exactly. such a great seat. You probably don't have a lot of leverage. So I think in his case, I'll take whatever I can get and then I'll earn incremental income through lucrative sponsorships in the UK. Because of course, he's a British driver mm -hmm. and a team based out of the UK. From a, from a promotional perspective, the sky's the limit. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that, uh, you know, me reading between the lines here, when I saw 2022 and beyond, I thought two-year deal with an option. So I, I'm thinking maybe, yeah, two, possibly three years. And uh, that would uh, seem to be about uh, the, the norm. Now, talking about one of his, um, I guess you could say classmates, because Esteban Ocon, he kind of fits into that uh, generation of uh, drivers like Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris, uh, George Russell, etc. Anyways, uh, so apparently I'll Pien are already in talks with uh, Esteban about uh, a new uh, contract uh, to keep him there next year. Uh, no uh, details uh, really being uh, released on that other than that uh, they're, they're talking. And I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago that maybe he's one of the more underrated drivers on the the, the, the grid this season. And, uh, you know, it really is kind of fascinating to see how he's matching up against uh, his teammate, you know, 300-year-old uh, Fernando Alonso, you know, two-time uh, world champion. But um, still, I mean, Fernando kind of says still finding his feet. He's had some moments uh, over the first uh, four races. But I think if uh, this is uh, exciting for for Esteban, I mean, he signed a two-year deal uh, with uh, with Renault in 2020, you know, after he sat out that one year in 2019. And um, last year, I I think, I I don't, it it was disappointing in a sense, but I think what we saw was the, I I guess you could call it a hangover of a guy that uh, was forced to sit out a a year and miss a year because when the the, the musical chairs of the the, the Formula One driver's market stopped in 2019 or after 2018, whenever it was, he ended up without a seat and it it took a long time for him to to shake off the rust. But I think he's he's rebounded nicely. I think that uh, we started to see a bit of resurgence, a bit of a, you know, a, a rebirth towards the end of last year. And this year, I think he, he's more back to, he reminds me more of the Esteban Alcon a couple of years ago prior to that uh, one year enforced layoff. So if he manages to land, uh, you know, a new deal with uh, with Alpine, I think that's uh, that that's great if you're Esteban Alcon for sure. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I really can't speak highly enough about his first full season of Formula One. Like he started racing the back half of 2016 with Manor. Uh, that was never a team that was going to be particularly competitive. And of course they exited the sport at, after the end of the season, but his first full season with Force India, like you look at his performances, he finished in the points in all but two races, except for Montreal where he finished 12th and Brazil where he retired. That's an unbelievable start because it just shows consistency mm-hmm. and formula one cars are incredibly difficult to drive especially when you're young and especially when you're getting used to the aerodynamics and the grip in the tires so to put in that level of consistency in the first season is absolutely remarkable and to your point it was it was a little bit heartbreaking that and i love that term musical chairs that when the music stopped playing he just didn't have a seat right um but ultimately, I think it's a great move by Alpine. And I think the other thing that's really smart for Alpine about this is if they want to build this brand that's kind of connected to French identity because it's a French team and they wear French colors and, and all those other kind of pieces, it's really helpful to have a talented French driver mm-hmm. in your race seat. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to MotoGP Corner in about an hour, <laughs> and a, hour and a half. But I think it's a smart move for this team. And so far, it seems like his relationship with Fernando's very good. I shouldn't say very good. It's good because historically... The relationships that Fernando has had with most of his teammates haven't been great, especially when the driver in the other seat is equally as competitive. So it's uh, it's been a good it's been a good dynamic so far, and I'm happy for him. And I think this is the right move for Alpine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's take another break here, Mark. And then when we come back, I kind of want to bring it full circle, but not quite. We started with Valtteri Bottas. I wanted to talk next about uh, George Russell because he's had a couple of things to say about his own contract uh, situation. And of course, uh, when you talk about Valtteri. 
you automatically start thinking about George Russell. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And we're going to round up our discussion on, uh, I guess, the the opening round here of uh, the 2021 uh, driver market silly season. Anyways, uh, George Russell says that he wants his next contract in Formula One to be a multi-year deal uh, so he can achieve what he calls uh, have consistency in order to grow and progress. So his contract with uh, Williams expires at the end of the this year. And uh, well, l- let's put it this way. I think that George has done pretty good since he managed to get into Formula One with Williams. Obviously, uh, it was never going to be a team that he was going to achieve. Uh, podiums or race wins with but I think that he's done very well since he's been there I mean it was going to be difficult because the it was a team that was obviously struggling we're starting to see maybe some promising hints uh, now that uh, they've got new ownership in place Uh, but still I mean when he filled in for Lewis Hamilton and Sakir last year in that one-off race I mean he was very very impressive and I think that uh, for George, when you go around and you see these stories about Lando, you see these stories about Esteban Alcon, you see stories about like uh, Carlos Sainz signing a contract with Ferrari or uh, Max Verstappen signing a a multi-year deal with Red Bull and uh, Charles Leclerc, all these guys that, uh, you know, he has a history with uh, or has raced uh, against a lot of these guys in uh, in Formula 2 and other formulas. He's kind of like the one guy that's, he's almost being a little bit left out of the conversation. I mean, ultimately, who knows, maybe he gets that second seat at uh, at Mercedes maybe goes on to have a great career with them maybe it's it's a Cinderella story waiting to happen we don't know it's uh, it's it, you know that's going to play out in front of us at at some point but totally you can see just uh, maybe a bit of the frustration and uh, I don't want to say the, the the futile nature of the situation, but you, you can see frustration in that uh, that sort of I, I'd say very politically worded statement to, to have consistency in order to grow and progress. I, I think that he's kind of realizing that if he stays where he is, that maybe he's going to hit the the, the ceiling, and just in terms of his own career, that uh, he, he wants he wants more, and I, I think that he's earned it. Imagine. So let's back the truck up a little bit. Let's go back to 2018. So George Russell in 2018 wins the Formula 2 championship, which is the open wheel championship immediately before low Formula 1. It's the principal feeder series. He wins the championship by like 80 points over Lando Norris. In third place was Alexander Elbon. In the meantime, this poor guy has now spent three years in Formula One. So again, I'm sure he's very thankful to be in Formula One, but he's now spent three years with what has been consistently the worst team in the championship in that time while watching other young drivers that are basically part of his class, like Alexander Albon, get a shot with Red Bull, watching Lando Norris score podiums, watching Charles Leclerc score podiums and race wins, watching (laughs) other young drivers like Carlos Sainz and Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly win races. And Yuki Sonata scored a point in his first race in Formula One. And it took Russell almost two full seasons and a fluke ride with Mercedes to score points. Like from his perspective, I think he has every right to be 
brimming with frustration at this point. Like, where is my shot? Like all these drivers that I've beaten in every single lower tier of open wheel racing, they are getting rides and fighting for points and fighting for podiums. And I never have that opportunity. And I think we can probably trust at this point that he's doing everything possible with this car. And I just, I think for his sake, and I think for the betterment of Formula One, he needs to be in a better whip. And ultimately, I think you're right. He's going to look for a long-term deal. I think the question is ultimately where it's going to be. So he's managed by total. He's a Mercedes driver. He was sponsored by Mercedes coming up through the lower formulas. I think the natural progression for him would be Mercedes, but if Mercedes opts to go in a different direction for 2022, I don't think he's going to be back with Williams because I think his contractual uh, contractual obligations had him there for three years. I think the question right. then is, yeah. where is he going to land? Because to your earlier point, we're starting to see some of these other doors close, which if Ocon re-ups with Alpine, it's not going to be Alpine, and Nando's re-upped with McLaren, it's not going to be McLaren. Where's, where's that opportunity going to be for him? It's it's going to be interesting, and it's definitely going to be a distraction if this doesn't get cleared up in the next few months. Yeah, you know, I, I can't help but feel a bit sorry for the guy because, I mean, he's he's worked really, really, really hard, and uh, he's done everything he possibly can at, uh, at, at Williams. And, I mean, I know that he has that... Uh, what is it, that nickname of, uh, excuse me, Mr. Saturday, which is, it's it's not really supposed to be anything kind of like snide or underhanded, but I mean, the thing is he does, I think he does more than that car is really capable of. And uh, just to say, okay, well, getting into Q2, big whoop, you know, that's that that's no big deal. But, you know, if you're in a Williams, that that actually is a bit of a big deal because they, they really don't have too much of a, a hope of scoring points under most normal race circumstances, right? I mean, if that things get flipped on their heads, if there's safety cars and there's bad weather and some, you know, some misfortune for other drivers, then yeah, sure, maybe they'll sneak into the points or maybe this this weekend is one race that they're 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 looking at to win because okay, you don't don't need that top end speed. Maybe that car's handles a little bit better than, you know, maybe it's a little bit deficient on the high, you know, the top end speed and stuff like that. So, but the thing is, I mean, let's just put it this way i mean they almost need a bit of a a bit of a freak circumstance or a bit of a freak opportunity to score points and you know if you're you're um i was gonna say lando norris or charles leclerc all these all these guys i mean that, that if um george is listening to this and he probably isn't of course but you know he must be uh, frustrated because just uh, that just goes to prove the point is that you know when you think of these young generation of drivers you're thinking lando you're thinking charles you're th- thinking esteban and George is completely getting uh, you know forgotten about in this uh, the, this conversation, and that must be so maddening for him. And as much as uh, uh, Valtteri Bottas wants an answer ASAP on what his status with, with the Mercedes is, is either yes you're coming back or no you're not. George is probably thinking the same thing for all those reasons that you mentioned that you know he's uh, out of contract at the end of the, the year at Williams. He's uh, managed by Total Wolf. He's a Mercedes driver and all these other things. And you know I know it was only one race, but he did. So so well. I mean, it was unfortunate that he ended up in, uh, you know, the final race classification where he did, because by rights, he should have won that race. And it was absolutely, um, it, it was one of those standout moments from, from last year, just uh, how how well he actually did right from the very first practice session through qualifying into the race itself. I mean, let, let's not forget, I mean, he barged his way past Valtteri Bottas right at the very start of the race. And if it wasn't for some of these unfortunate incidents uh, later in the race and, you know, that botched pit stop and everything like that, that put him back to what, eighth, ninth? Where did he end up in the end? Some, something like that. One of the lower point, yeah, ninth. 
so just uh, just in the points and um, yeah, I, I mean, like I say, I mean, basically to round it all out, I, I feel for the guy because he he clearly has demonstrated that he's got some talent, but you know, now, now the question is, okay, we know he's got talent, but is he going to get the opportunity to demonstrate that challenge or that talent on a bigger stage? We don't know. It's it's interesting as well because as we talk through this, and I don't think we needed to have this conversation to draw this conclusion, but the future of George Russell is intrinsically linked to the future of Valtteri Bottas, right? Like yeah. If, if Bottas re-ups with, with Mercedes, that, that door closes for George Russell, which I think is the most desirable potential destination for him. But I think the challenge is all these other opportunities are closing before our eyes and maybe ultimately a driver swap. And I'd never thought about this before. And I don't even know how receptive Valtteri Bottas would be to this, especially because Williamson isn't in a position where they could potentially pay him what he would want, but maybe Mm -hmm. ultimately a driver swap. And we've seen this before would be a natural move here, which is ultimately, you know what, Valtteri, you're going to keep a seat in Formula One. It's a team that you're familiar with. They're continuing to develop. You can help them. Your expertise would be good. He would be a valuable marketing or asset for the Williams team as well to have a driver that has that Mercedes association and this one Grand Prix. He could be useful to Williams in a lot of ways, but maybe ultimately the best thing here is a a driver swap between the two teams. Uh, I just, I think ultimately, like I said, they're their careers are intrinsically intertwined at this point, mm-hmm. um, which is which is pretty interesting. It, it is, and I can't help uh, but looking at uh, George Russell in 2021, and I, I can't help but seeing the reflection of Esteban Ocon in 2019 kind of like popping up because the the, the more that, uh, the, you know, every day and every week that this kind of drags on, I, I kind of get that sort of sinking feeling for George that, you know, if something doesn't happen, that who knows, may, maybe he ends up in that same position. Maybe he ends up in a reserve driver role for Mercedes next year or for somebody else. And then maybe if it doesn't work out, then he's in the same, um, you know, uh, the, the same position that Esteban was a couple of years ago, that in order to progress in his own career, you know, he has to sever that link, those ties to Mercedes, which were so beneficial and so desirable to have as a younger driver. And, you know, the, this promise or the, this, this this hope, this golden light that I, I, I'm part of the Mercedes organization. If I just do what I I do and and, and work hard and, and, and race as hard as I can, that I will filter into that team. And, and I'm sure that uh, Esteban had that uh, that same you know hope and uh, desire at some point uh, in in the past, and ultimately that didn't work out, and he had to cut those uh, strings and move on. And we'll see how his career progresses uh, from here. But I mean, initially at uh, Alpine and Renault, it's it's been okay, and who knows, maybe that's where where George is going to end up. Because I mean, we've seen other drivers that have had those ties. I mean, look at Pascal Verline; he was reserve driver in the Hamilton Rosberg era. He was, you know potentially that guy and it, it never worked out and i mean he's not with mercedes not even in formula one anymore so there you go i'll share this as well because i think this would be interesting perspective for our listeners in 2013 uh valtteri bottas raced for williams it was a really difficult year for that team that was the final year of the v8 era in 2014 which was the first year of the v6 turbo hybrid era he finished fourth in the driver's championship fourth with six podiums he finished third in austria second in the uk second in germany third in belgium third in russia and and uh third at the conclusion in abu dhabi so he's 
done some very very good things with that team in the past. Oh yeah, so absolutely. Obviously, yep. obviously, he has a favorable he has a favorable legacy with that team. Uh, I just I think that could be smart, but we'll see we'll see how it ultimately plays out. But I would be. I would be no more surprised if he left the sport than I would be if he stayed with Mercedes. So we'll see. Yeah, it, it really is a situation that we're going to have to keep an eye on, uh, you know, over the weeks and months ahead. It, it's fun to speculate and talk about uh, for sure. Anyways, uh, let's take a final break here, Mark. When we come back, well, let's uh, preview the race ahead itself. I know that uh, MotoGP corner is coming up. I know you got lots of things you want to talk about and touch on there. So we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away, guys. We'll be back in just one moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And well, let, let's get right into it, Mark. We have the Monaco Grand Prix that uh, that is already ongoing. It, it's, it's already started. So let's just uh, talk about uh, some of the stats, uh, just, uh, you know, some of the history behind uh, Monaco. So d- just uh, a little bit of info about the track uh, itself. Uh, 78 lap race uh, or total race distance is um, a little bit over 260 kilometers. Circuit length is 3.3 kilometers long. The lap record was set by Max Verstappen in 2018 at a 114.260. This is interesting too. I mean, uh, this is a very grippy, very uh, abrasive uh, track. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, or at least that's what my my take was. Uh, That's what I thought it would be. And it actually turns out to be quite the opposite to that because uh, Pirelli is actually bringing the softest tires in their range, the C5, the C4, and the C3, which are the softest, grippiest tires. So I, I just thought that being Monaco, the way that it is, I thought it was a super rough, abrasive circuit uh, or, or a track surface, and it's not. So that's what we're going to see for the uh, you know for the tires uh, the, the, this weekend. But you know, it is interesting too. I mean, if you go back and you look at the the, the history of this uh, this uh, this race, I mean, it was uh, started. The first race was way back in what 1929 or something. I mean, it's literally been around uh, forever. Um, you know, the, the, it actually predates the Formula One uh, World Championship, and it's a uh, it's it's modern guy. So the, um, the the driver that is the winningest driver at uh, Monaco is Ayrton Senna. He won there six times between 1987 and 1993. Graham Hill and Michael Schumacher both won there five times. Alain Prost won there three times. Lewis Hamilton, in some pretty impressive uh, company, he won there three times, uh, as did Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart. And his former teammate, uh, Nico Rosberg, won there three times as well in 2013, 14, and 15. And then there's a whole whack of drivers that won there twice, including Fangio, including Lauda, Jody Schechter, Fernando Alonso won there twice. Uh, Mark Webber won there twice, as did uh, Sebastian Vettel. And then when it comes to the constructors, did you know who the most winningest team at Monaco is? I do. You do? It's McLaren. Oh, I'm disappointed. I was hoping I'd stumped you, but uh, apparently you're a walking encyclopedia, but you're correct. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the wittiness constructor is indeed McLaren. They won there, or they've won there 15 times, but uh, the most recent win for McLaren was way back in uh, 2008. Uh, Ferraris won there 10 times, Mercedes 8 times, and the last time we uh, had this race, because of, of course it wasn't uh, run last year because of the pandemic, 2019, uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, won this uh, the, the this Grand Prix. So, 
you know, what do we talk about when uh, specifically when it comes to this race? Uh, you know, I think basically the the one thing you can say that is predictable about Monaco is how unpredictable it is because, you know, anything literally can happen here. I mean, you can get some very, very weird uh, race results here. I mean, you go back to the mid 90s and um, Olivier Panis winning his one and only Grand Prix in Formula One for Ligier uh, of all teams. That's probably the only race that they ever won. <laughs> maybe, maybe they won more, but I don't, don't ever recall that. But it is really, like we said earlier in the show, it is a, a race that is unique in and of of, of itself and it is uh, like you said uh, earlier as well it's special in its own right uh, for for a bunch of different uh, reasons so please go ahead and elaborate on that please you know I, I appreciate the perfect segue and you've really teed this up and inadvertently stolen a lot of my thunder but I think oh, we'll go good. back and we'll, we'll, we'll re-record we'll this rewind. segment there. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll clean this up in post. You were far too on the point tonight. So, so we'll reverse this. But yeah, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. And I, I think you hit on one of them, which is one, in terms of tradition and history, this, this race has been on the calendar, to your point, even before there was a Formula One championship. It's been, it's been part of the history of the sport since the inception of the sport. It's been around since 1929. And there are other races that have been around for a long time as well. Well, including Silverstone and including Monza. But one of the things that makes Monza so special or Monza Mon Monaco so special is that the track layout itself that we're going to race on on Sunday is almost identical to the layout that was used, the configuration that was used back in 1929. So the consistency just rolls over and over and over. So that's good for legacy and tradition and history. The challenge though, is that that layout, that configuration was built for cars that were roughly a quarter of the size of today's cars. Today's cars are big. I mean, the Formula One cars of today are big compared to the cars of 2016. And that makes racing a little bit more challenging, but we'll get to that in a minute. So there's really three things that make Monaco important. First is tradition and history. The other is ambience and atmosphere. And we're not going to see it this re weekend. So if this is the first time you've watched Monaco, I apologize. You're not going to get the full Monaco experience. But almost all of the wealth and all of the celebrity in Europe and a lot of the celebrity from the US converges on Monaco for this weekend. And that's seen by people pouring out of the windows in the balconies of the hotels. It's people in yachts. In fact, I think there's another, well, I guess, I guess we see a, a really heavy yacht um, presence in Abu Dhabi now, but not as much as even Monaco's. So there's this really strong atmosphere. There's this presence. And it's one of the only races that takes place in the metro center of a city. So we see it in Melbourne. We see it in Montreal. We see it in Singapore. But it is right in the center of the city. The entire city basically gives up a weekend to accommodate the race. And it's part of the culture and it's very much a part of the identity of the city. And then again, in terms of the views, you have the oceans, you have the mountains. It's just, it's a beautiful setting and it's a mm -hmm. picturesque backdrop for a race. And then the third thing is that for the drivers, you know, we look at it, it's a tight course. It's relatively short. It is an absurdly challenging course for the drivers for a couple of reasons. One is that there aren't any significant long straights, which means they don't get to leverage DRS. The downside as well to the fact that there aren't any long straights is it doesn't give the opportunity or it doesn't give the drivers the opportunity to relax or rest. Like we probably don't think about this because they're sitting in a car the whole time they're just sitting there. 
Drivers depend on long straights to, rela to relax, to, to relax their neck muscles, to relax their backs, to relax their grip on the steering wheel. They need that momentary break to be able to regroup physically. And the challenge for Monaco is because there are no long straights, the drivers are tensed up and they're focused the entire race. And if you ever hear some of the drivers speak, this is one of the most exhausting races on the calendar. The other challenge is that because it's so tight, drivers make on average 50 gear changes per lap and each lap is only 74 seconds. So they're making a gear change on average every one and a half seconds. <laughs> it's an absolute grind. And then like you said, you make a mistake on this track it is an unforgiving track and your weekend is over. In fact, the race could be suspended or a red flag. So it's a, a very challenging track. And then the other thing too is that from a car perspective, the strain on the gearbox, the strain on the brakes, it's very, very challenging. And because again, there's no long long straights. There's no opportunity to cool the brakes. There's no opportunity to cool the engine. The cars are stressed. The drivers are stressed. It's exhausting. And it may not look like it because they're not hitting some of these top speeds, but sometimes when these cars are at the top speeds on these long straights, that's the most relaxed the car is. That's the most relaxed the driver is. So for all those reasons, it's a very, very unique and very, very, very special track. Now, the criticism is that ultimately becomes a possession. And mm -hmm. what we've seen historically is that overwhelmingly, the person who takes pole wins the race. And that's unfortunate, but it just makes qualifying that much more exciting because qualifying is that much more relevant. The other couple of points that I'll mention as well, and this is always kind of interesting just in the context of motorsports, is there's this unofficial motorsports triple crown, which is the Grand Prix of Monaco, which is the Indy 500, and 24 Hours of Le Mans. And there's drivers like Fernando Alonso that have pursued and tried to win this unofficial triple crown. So as, as, as the context of motorsports go globally, this is one of the most important events. And then finally, and this is really unique for a principality that houses just 40,000 people, Monaco has produced five Formula One drivers. In fact, Charles Leclerc himself is from Monaco. Yeah, there you go. You know, it, it is interesting too. But just uh, when I was listening to you, uh, you know, uh, just speak that last piece there, Mark. The one thing that really stood out to me is that Formula One nowadays, it, it's rare to see several cars retire in a race because of uh, mechanical issues. And Monaco is usually that exception. I mean, attrition for one reason of another uh, is uh, is usually an issue. It, it's either like you say, somebody kisses a wall, breaks a piece of uh, suspension, or has a big crash and destroys the car, or you know the brakes overheat or the engine overheats, and you know there's something in the car breaks and their 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 race is done. So I mean, there's almost uh, any of those. Uh, one things uh, that or any one of those things can, can happen to end somebody's uh, race on uh, Saturday. Sorry, on Sunday. So I, I'm going to put it to you now before we segue into MotoGP Corner to wrap up the show. So who are you going to pick to win this race? Are, are you going to stick with the the usual Max or Lewis uh, narrative that we've been going with uh, this year? Are you going to be a little bit more daring and, and come up with maybe a little bit more unexpected pick for a race winner? It's it's interesting, and I'm actually going to defer to a listener that sent us a tweet. Do you mind if I read this tweet? Yeah, go for it. So I, I've got the, my pick, but I, okay. I'm interested to hear what other people have been saying. So basically, I'm deferring because I'm not brave enough to make a pick, but I'm going to defer to this question. So this is from a listener, Ha Allo, or at 
H-Y-S-A-L-O. Hey guys, so McLaren's boldest backline has got me thinking about this weekend's GP. The phase is, or the phrase is extremely apt for Monaco, a track that requires as bold a driving style as any track on the calendar. While us mere mortals can only revel in what those 19 men do on the streets of Monaco, hashtag Mazepin, we can, <laughs> we can be bold in our own right and that is in our predictions. And for whatever reason, I've had a few of my own this week and I'd be thrilled to know yours. Here are mine. Firstly, I don't believe either Hamilton or the stat man, not a typo, I'm coining the nickname, will win. In fact, I think Perez finished ahead of his Red Bull teammate for the first time. I also believe Daniel Ricciardo will get his first McLaren podium and may even win. Finally, provided he can finish the race, I think Russell gets into the points. I'd be thrilled to know your bold, he's challenging us here, your bold predictions and would be happy to provide rationale, however tinfoil hat that you might like it, on mine. Keep up the good work, guys. Hateman from the UK. So that, that is an amazing. That that is a that that is a you know it's a really great uh, message. Um, well, I am as stupid as I look, so I'm going to make a, a bold <laughs> or, <laughs> or stupid prediction here. I, I want to go a little bit uh, different. I, I like the the, the fact that uh, he's going a little bit uh, outside of the box uh, to use that uh, that that phrase. But yeah, I I want to go with somebody a, a little bit uh, different than Max or um, or or Lewis, and th- and that's why I think that uh, qualifying is going to be. Really, really fascinating. Can somebody really stick a really hot lap around there and put it on the pole and really shock everyone and then manage to hang on those entire 78 laps? I, I was going to just to sort of like uh, pick randomly a hat or a name out of the hat, but I, I'm kind of feeling Charles Leclerc has a, has a, a shot at winning this uh, race this weekend. I, I don't know why. It's, it's just uh, for me, it's a bit of a gut feeling. I think that um, he's obviously got uh, unfinished business there. I mean, uh, you know, the the only time that he's had a chance to really win that race in a competitive car was a couple of years ago, and his Ferrari didn't even uh, you know make it out of the garage that day in his uh, second year in Formula One, and it's uh, been a couple of years. I mean, he didn't get the opportunity last year. Ferrari, as we talked about off the top of the show, was looking uh, pretty pacey in practice, um, you know, legitimate or other, excuse me, otherwise. So I, I don't know. I, I'm feeling Charles Leclerc might have a, a legit shot to win this race. How about you? One of the things I love about that listener is he was basically inserting prop bets into this, which I think is kind of cool. So I'm going to go with my prop bets first. And I don't actually know if that's what, I I don't know if I'm using that term properly, but here's a couple of things that I think will happen. Okay. I think 15 or fewer cars are going to finish the race. I think we'll see, to your point, a lot of attrition, especially with some of these younger drivers like Mazepan and Sonata and Mick Schumacher and Nicholas Latifi that have never seen this track before. I think there'll be a lot of early attrition. Um, I think that Aston Martin is going to get a car into the points as a knock-on effect of the of the attrition and I think a driver other than Lewis or Max will win the race, but I'm not bold enough to go any more precise than that. Well, you know, the, the, the big key to the start of this race is from start finish, you have that very short run up the straight into that 90 degree right hander at Saint Devot. If the, the entire field can get through that corner clean, yeah. then it, it's going to be interesting. But as we've seen over the years, that we can see contact at that corner throughout the race and especially at the start. So those first couple, several laps are going to be really interesting to watch to see how the uh, the, the, the cars go through there. I mean, 
it's uh you know it is one of those sort of magnet points uh, for drama i mean max had a big shunt there a couple of years ago i think that might have even been when he was with uh, taro rosso uh going back uh, several years now but um certainly that's uh, one one point that you have to keep uh, keep an eye out for and certainly i i think that uh, what happens in those first couple of laps and uh, d- depending uh, whether we lose any cars right off of the bat so will really determine you know who who's left and where they're sitting and uh, ultimately how things uh, play out and whether or not we see any um, uh, overtaking or if it's going to be a repeat of a couple of years ago when all the drivers afterwards were complaining that it was a procession and it was uh, it wasn't fun but you know at at the, uh, the the same time it was kind of fun to watch at home because that was the race where ricardo what what was he he had some issue. Could he, I think it was his gearbox or something, wasn't it? Didn't he lose like first, second, and third gear or something like that? Yep, or, and still finished. Yep. Yeah, he still finished. So, I mean, that was exciting to watch just whether or not he could uh, hang on to it. So, you know, there, there are, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit uh, boring. It can be a little bit uh, processional, but it can also be an exciting race. And that's part of the fun of it as well. So. Uh, we have another question from okay. a listener via Twitter, but you know what? I'm actually going to save this one. It's a great question from at Fire, um, but I think we'll save that for the next podcast because it's probably something we'd want to spend five or 10 minutes on. So okay. I'm going to shelve that. But before we move on, we did post, so we actually put up a bit of a Scuderia F1 quiz on our Twitter feed a couple of days ago. So I had posted, and I want to make sure I give credit to the people that got this right, but we had posted a photo of a 2016 spec Ferrari on track in 2016. And we had asked very specifically, there is something very unique and very unusual about this car. And we got a ton of responses, but only two of them were right. So I shout out to DJ, or otherwise known as at the Vice 1999, and Rajesh Padalkar, because both of them, both Rajesh Padalkar and DJ at the Vice 1999, identified that the 2016 spec Ferrari that was pictured on our Twitter feed was wearing a halo. And the halos Hmm. weren't officially introduced until 2018. This was a bit of a quiz to see if anyone could spot the the unique uh, attribute of this car. But that photo was actually taken um, at uh, Yas Marina while the team was doing a little bit of halo testing. So Formula One had done some testing during the 2016 season, mid-season 2017, and they finally introduced the halo for the 2018 season. So shout out to both of you for picking up the unusual oddity that was on that Ferrari car. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, I mean, in retrospect, now looking back at uh, sort of pre-Halo cars, I, I've become completely used to it uh, <laughs> compared to where we were several years ago. I was like, I don't know how I could ever get used to seeing a car I, with I a Halo. Isn't it funny? Dude, I feel uncomfortable when I see a car without a Halo now. I'm like, ooh, that doesn't feel safe. It's like when I see a young kid riding a bike without a helmet. Like, ooh, that's <laughs> not good. Where's your, where are your parents? <laughs> well, I mean, just ask Charles Leclerc when he had uh, Fernando Alonso go over the front of his car at uh, Spa a couple of years ago. How thankful it was. <laughs> he to have the halo on his car that day hey anyways mark i would be totally remiss and i would be an awful friend if i didn't give you a chance to throw in moto gp corner i mean you're going to start dialing up the music here so so go ahead and do your thing you know i i must admit that i wanted some like italian music for you i i tried (laughs) calling pavarotti before this one and he didn't pick up so you know whatever I appreciate the effort. And I just want to make clear that while you're spending hours and hours doing research and getting ready for the show, I'm spending four hours on the web (laughs) looking for the perfect musical jingo. So it kind of shows where our priorities are. So I'll pause here so the music can start. 
It's already going, my friends. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> update this week, and I've kind of teased at this in the past. So quick update on the sport. We had the French Grand Prix last weekend. Super, super special. Uh, Jack Miller, an Australian rider for what's shaping up to be a phenomenal Ducati team this year, won the race. The very, very, very cool thing about it is that the sport currently has two French drivers, or French drivers, two French riders, and they both finished on the podium. Johan Zarco, also riding, riding for uh, Ducati, finished second, and Fabio Cateraro, I can never say his name, and I apologize to all of our French listeners, finished third, also finished on the podium for Yamaha. So a pretty special race for all those French fans to see both of the French riders in MotoGP finish on the podium. Now, what I wanted to speak to real quick was a little bit of context on one of the most important riders in in MotoGP. There's a rider named Marc Marquez, not to be mistaken with another Marquez because his brother is also now in the championship. He joined MotoGP in 2013. He then went on to win the championship that year. He won the championship in 2014. He won the championship in 16, 17, 18, and 19. So a bit of a Lewis Hamilton effect. He races for a team called Repsol Honda. That is Honda's official factory team. Honda both has a team and functions as an engine supplier. The difference I think between Mark Marquez and Lewis Hamilton, and I've kind of teased at this in the past a little bit, is that in MotoGP, the bike is a is important. The reliability is important. The power unit is important. All those things are important. But because the margin for error in MotoGP is so much slimmer, I just want to be clear that what he's been able to achieve over the first six or seven years of his career is I shouldn't say unprecedented because Valentino Rossi did it in the decades before, but is ultimately remarkable. The fact that he could put in so much consistency year over year over year is remarkable. So this is a guy now that has six championships. Again, like I said, actually, I'm mistaken. He has, yeah, six championships at the MotoGP level. He's only 28 years old. Now, he suffered a devastating injury last year, missed almost the entire championship, missed the first two races of this season, Finished seventh in Portugal, ninth in Spain, and ultimately had a retirement due to an accident in France. But the eyes of the sport are on him because they want to see how quickly he can recover and things like that. So that's kind of the update this week. We're going into the next race in Italy, which should be an exciting one. It could potentially be maybe the last race that Valentino Rossi ever races in his home country, which mm -hmm. would be... It would be heartbreaking. Valentino Rossi has meant so much to the sport. When he goes back to Italy, it's an, a spectacle unlike anything that we see in Formula One. But that's our MotoGP corner update for this week. I'm done. Whereabouts are they uh, racing in Italy then? Let's pause this because I've <laughs> known that. It is not Monza. Give me a second here. Italian GP, MotoGP 2021. This is super awkward. Um, <laughs> so hopefully you'll clean this up. Oh my God, it's Mugello. Of course it's Mugello. And oh, this right. is one of the reasons why it was so cool to see Formula One go to Mugello last year. It's because it's a track I've seen for so long on the MotoGP track or on the MotoGP calendar. It was cool to see how Formula One translated. But yeah, we will be at Mugello this coming Sunday, May 30th. You know, honestly, uh, Mugello was one of those uh, tracks that was kind of thrown in last year because of the uh, rearranged schedule because of the pandemic i was a little bit disappointed that it didn't make it onto the the, the schedule this year obviously it, it didn't work out but uh, certainly it was uh, really cool to see and i guess uh, you know if you're done i'm done this is the perfect place to, to wrap it up uh, monaco is going to be going in just uh, over 48 hours so we will be back on sunday night if you want to uh, weigh in on what happens uh, during the race or throughout the way at race weekend please send us a tweet at scuderia f1 pod or send us an email at scuderia f1 pod at gmail.com 
And that's it. That's a wrap on behalf of myself, Mark Daly, and my friend and co-host, Mark Hamilton. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.